You are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is our review of First Cow. What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. My mother died when I was born, and then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. It's ain't a place for cows. Well, it's no place for a white man either. I sense opportunity here. Good Lord, give me another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. I taste London in this game. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. It seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? A royal cow. Until she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. Let's hope he's one of those. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for First Cow, and the story is as follows. Two travelers on the run from a band of vengeful hunters in the 1820s Northwest dream of striking it rich, but their tenuous plan to make their fortune on the frontier comes to rely on the secret use of a landowner's prized dairy cow. The film is starring Joe Magaro, Orion Lee, and Toby Jones. It is written and directed by Kelly Reichardt and co-written by Jonathan Raymond. Join me for this podcast review. I have Kaya Shinyata. Hello. Josh Parm. Hello, hello. Dan Baer. Suddenly hungry for biscuits. <laughs> and rejoining us here on the podcast once again from filmschoolrejects.com, it is Emily Cubancanic. Emily, how are you today? Good. How are you guys? Doing well. Doing well. Ready to uh, talk about uh, the cow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, First Cow, this movie premiered uh, over the film festival circuit uh, last year. I remember being at Telluride. I remember it playing there. And I remember deliberately avoiding it because, a little bit of a confession here, Kelly Reichardt's a very, very interesting filmmaker. Uh, She has this really incredible ability to capture um, the Midwest of America in a way that I don't know if any other filmmaker has really been able to do it in modern times. And she does it both um, not just in contemporary uh, stories, but also with period films as well. And her films are typically very, for lack of a better word, slow. And that's either going to be your thing or it's not. And most of the time for me, and I've actually seen quite a lot of her movies with the exception of what's called Night Moves. Mm -hmm. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah, that's the only one I haven't seen. But I've seen all of her other films. And every time I've watched them, I always come away with the same aesthetic and the same kind of feeling of this is good. It's just not for me. Um, So I avoided seeing First Cow. And then I actually uh, saw that it was playing again at uh, the New York Film Festival uh, this past year. And I figured, because it got really good reviews, and I just was like, you know what? I've already seen the others. I might as well. And so I went in. I fully knew what I was getting myself into. And I pleasantly 
emerged from my screening of First Cow at NYFF, definitely saying to myself, yep, that is a Kelly Reichardt film through and through, but I think it's my favorite favorite Kelly Reichardt film. So I'm curious to know where, where you all fall in line with that. Uh, why don't we actually start off with our guest here, Emily? Um, tell us what you think of uh, First Cow and maybe give us a little backstory on uh, Kelly Reichardt as well. Um, I mean, I saw it at New York Film Festival and immediately loved it. And then like listening to her talk about it after the screening just made me enjoy it even more. Um, but I agree. She has a certain style that, um, she's concerned with the working class people of America of kind of, um, analyzing our country in a way that it may not make it look as great as it does in other movies, but that's the kind of country it is. And um, so I enjoy that. And I think this one um, falls in line with that too. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, talk about the American dream in this film. And I, I like that there is this connection both to uh, the present and the past. And we'll definitely dig into that here in a little bit as well. Kaya, uh, what about you? Thoughts on First Cow? Um, I surprisingly loved it because like you, I wasn't that big of a fan of her previous films that I've seen. Um, certain women I didn't really connect with. I enjoyed Old Joy. And then this one like took me off guard because I don't like it's slow, like you said, but they're just there's like more meat to it than her other films for me. And it's my favorite movie of the year now, so I really loved it. I hope that wasn't a cow pun that you just made right there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of beef on this one. (laughs) I didn't try to. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, to steal a pun I saw online the other day, moving along. uh, Let's hear now from Dan Bear. Um, Well, I, uh, like you, Matt, am not the hugest fan of Kelly Reichardt. I will admit that Wendy and Lucy makes me cry buckets, and I love that one for it. Um, but as for her other stuff, I agree. It, it's just not generally speaking my tempo to coin a phrase. Um, but this <laughs> is the cutest movie. I mm-hmm. just like was I, the first act of it was very slow and I didn't, really love it until they got to the settlement and um, uh, the the relationship between these two characters really started to uh, build and grow. And when we got to that point, I was um, all in. I, because it's based, like it's this friendship that is based on kindness and how often do we see that and how much do we need that these days? You know, like it just felt like something that was very, it felt very true in a way that I needed to see at this particular moment in time. Yeah, no, I definitely have some thoughts on that. Actually, I want to touch on in a second here as well. Uh, but definitely, I agree with you. There are elements of this movie that I would, I would, I would use the word cute. Yeah, no, it's definitely got a nice vibe to it at times. Josh, so I have a confession to make. Okay, this is 
my first Kelly Reichardt film. Wow. wow. Okay. You know, she's one of those filmmakers that none of her movies ever get that wide of a release when they come out. And it her movies have just always kind of eluded me in theaters. And then by the time they come on video, I'm sort of distracted with other stuff. And, I, you know, she's a filmmaker that definitely has a very strong reputation. And I have known about that throughout the years. But for whatever reason, I have just never actually sat down to watch one of her movies until this moment. And my feelings about this movie, I feel like are almost 100% in your uh, point of view, Dan. I think that the beginning of this was a bit slow for me, and it was a little difficult for me to get into it. It was just, like, so kind of slow and meandering in the beginning. But it does hit a point, I think, basically when the plot happens, where (laughs) I was starting to get more invested in these characters and their relationship. And, yes, there is a tenderness to that friendship, but it's also got kind of an undercurrent of cynicism to it as well and how it's kind of built on exploitation and how that also ripples into larger American themes of of, of sort of, you know, friendship, but kind of taking advantage of people too, which is also very fascinating. And yeah, by the end of it, I was pretty much won over by this movie. I think it's a really interesting achievement and I would definitely say one of the year's best movies. So the movie starts off with the quote, a bird, a nest, the spider, or web, man, friendship. And one thing I want to actually first start off here as a talking point about First Cow is how the movie examines this friendship between uh, the John McGarrow and Orion Lee characters and does it in a way that, honestly, I don't see many other movies really exploring a male friendship the same way that this movie does. There's no romantic angle. There's no real conflict necessarily. It's just a very genuine, sweet partnership that becomes a friendship. And one that I have to admit by the end of this film, um, it, it left me stunned, honestly, with how powerful and the the, the bond between these two uh, had just become. Uh, without giving spoilers away, too, I think that the beginning of the film, uh, which is set in modern times, uh, casts a mood over the rest of the movie, one that you kind of forget about it a little bit as the movie goes on. But by the time the movie reaches its final scene, I, I think that I think that's what gives First Cow its, its immense power is um, that bond, that friendship, and how it is something that is so strong that's transcendent. That's interesting, because I really wouldn't say that I forgot about that first scene, and I actually think that that first scene kind of implants something very ominous throughout the rest of the movie that, to be honest with you, I felt like was very unnecessary, and I sort of wish the movie didn't have that, to be honest with you, because it sort of almost sets it up like it's going to be a bookend, and... We really don't come back to it, and I felt like we that the movie actually would have been stronger without it, but that was just how it kind of read to me. I actually agree, Josh. Um, I, it, I agree with you, Matt, that it did sort of, by the time we got to the end of the main narrative of the movie, it did, it, that beginning does have an impact, kind of. Well... During the whole chase sequence where they're being pursued, 
I don't know about you guys, but I was incredibly tense throughout that entire 15 or so minutes, whatever it was, because I was expecting, you know, a gunshot or something at any moment. You know, I was looking for that, like that shocker moment. But instead, Kelly Reichardt stays true to herself and she doesn't go for the bombastic and she goes for the quiet, the simplistic. And I think it ends up being really poetic and it actually elevates, um, like I said, the film in the end. I mean, I agree. I definitely liked that it stayed kind of quiet and all. But I the beginning, <laughs> it. I mean, first off, it made me very confused because I'm like, isn't this supposed to be about um, something else? Am I watching something the right movie? In the past? <laughs> yeah, it was like, did somehow the real change and someone accidentally put in Wendy and Lucy instead? Like, did I forget how that movie started? It's like that. It's like that first time you watch Titanic and you're like, why is there modern technology? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I. I was very confused. I don't know why you get Alia Shawkat to do, you know, five seconds of that. Um, but I, I, it's one of those things where I feel like I, as good as this movie is and as much as I didn't really have an issue with the lens, I feel like there's a an even better 90-minute movie in this. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think you start with cutting that little prologue. Yeah, um, so the book that it's based off of, it's called Half-Life by Jonathan Raymond, and she collaborates with him a lot, and so the book deals with, they find these bones, and they are the people that are in the movie, and um, they're trying to trace who they were, but um, there's like a whole different story and an investigation and things, and she didn't really want to add that point to it. Um, just from like talking to her, but, um, she wanted that idea that these people died there. They are with the land and they're there. And uh, like, there's, uh, evidence that the things that they did, the life that they had are still there and like affect people of today. Um, and I think like, I don't know, for me, it's like shot for shot the way they are in the, um, the bones and then like the last shot. And so for me, it wasn't very like, I feel like if she had a bookend, it would have been way too um, obvious. And that's like not her style at all. Um, And as soon as I saw them lay down, like I knew that was what was going to happen. And it was devastating for me. Yeah. It hit me on an emotional level. And like I said, every time I was expecting, especially when they lay down, I was expecting them to be found um, and honestly, just riddled with bullets or something. Um, the movie just doesn't do that. <laughs> and I commend the movie for not going that route. Uh, because, like I said, I, I was like holding my breath during the final like 10 minutes of this movie, always expecting it to go in a direction of like pure tragedy. But instead, it went in a direction of like gracefulness and also too Emily like you were saying before about becoming one with the land and how this movie is so much about the forging of um you know of uh, of opportunity in America and the American dream and such I I find all that to be better suited to the themes that Kelly's playing with in this movie um I feel the same um I kind of forgot about the beginning sequence with the bones 
as the film went on. And then once they were laying there at the end, I'm like, oh, okay. And it kind of goes with what Emily was saying, because at one point King Lou says history isn't here yet. And then with them dying there and being amongst nature and everything and their legacy kind of staying there, it's it all goes together. It's also really interesting, too, how this is like a story about people that never actually gained real prominence. They never did open up mm-hmm. like a commercial bakery and become household names within the industry and, you know, later on get their names uh, stamped on cooking or bakery products like that we would use today or anything like that. But yet that's I what I like about this is that I like that Kelly, you know, does not diminish uh, their story and their lives and like what it is that they were optimistic and hopeful about. Um, and, it, you know, just because they didn't achieve this grand success you know what i mean like she really focuses on the little guy yeah oh yeah it's a story that's very intimate and it's interesting to juxtapose that against you know the the vast you know sort of wilderness of uh america at this time and i find all that exploration to be very fascinating that yes these are at at sort of the most basic elements they are people that have relatively simple goals but at the same time i also like how that the movie doesn't put aside that their goals are also based on kind of exploiting other people and that sometimes it's a little bit more, you know, sort of innocent and innocuous, but you can't ignore that element either. And I find that to be an interesting wrinkle in the themes that it's exploring. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't most success in American business exploitation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. I mean, they even uh, lean into the fact that, like, you know, he's um, chi- uh, he's Chinese, right? If I remember correctly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And they say, like, oh, it's an ancient Chinese recipe to, like, kind of <laughs> give it, like, a little bit more, 
like mysticism, you know. And uh, it's like you know the movie leans into that a little bit there, and I, yeah. I like I said, I just really really appreciate that level of uh, care that's taken to the storytelling and those fine little details. Yeah, and the idea that like you can steal from the rich basically because they're so rich that they won't even notice that they're yeah. being stolen from because they can't imagine that anybody would steal from them. And then, you know, they make a whole big deal about this situation when it's like you, you took milk from a cow. <laughs> like, and, yeah. But it's beautiful. It's, it's brilliant storytelling that, yes, such a big deal is made just because something was taken from another person of privilege. For what purpose? To try to enrich the lives of, of everybody else. And that is considered a great offense. And I don't think that that's accidental commentary in this movie. No, think about uh, how much we took away from the native people of this land to forge mm-hmm. our own success and dynasty or, you know, however you want to word it. But, I mean, I, I love that it, it flip-flops here. Yeah, and I love all the, like, I really do love that it felt like just slice of life at this time and place it it wasn't a big story it wasn't some epic tale of conquering the frontier you know it it felt down and dirty and scrappy and you know like life was really like when you are trying to build a life and a community out of nothing and the movie doesn't feel cheap I don't think yeah, in terms no. of its set design, no. the costumes, or any of those no. uh, elements for that matter. Um, the cinematography is gorgeous. Oh my god, the cinematography is incredible. You know, my only gripe about the cinematography, uh, Christopher uh, Blavat uh, shot this film 4x3, uh, otherwise known as like you know square uh, ratio here, uh, which I like because it helps with that intimate feeling. Um, and you know, it, it, it kind of forces the audience to lean in and pay attention a little bit more, uh, subconsciously into what's happening within the frame, which I think with Kelly Reichardt films, you really need to do. Uh, but some of the nighttime scenes, especially when they were like milking the cow, I did find they were maybe a little too dark where I couldn't tell what was going on at times. Yeah, I would agree with that. But at the same time, like. <laughs> the way they use the depth of the frame mm-hmm. in so many of these shots is great. And, like, it's surprisingly funny movie. Um, oh, yeah. And a lot of that is because of the framing. Like, I keep thinking of when he finally arrives in the in the settlement and John Magaro's character goes to the bar. And these two guys kind of fight. Leave it, One of them leaves his baby with... In the bar with John Macaro's character. And they go out and we just see them fighting like through the open door of the bar in just in the street in the background. And I, I maybe that's just me, but I laughed hysterically at that. Yeah. No, I thought that, I, I think the movie's got a, a nice um beat of humor here and there to kind of help add a little bit of levity to it because that opening is so ominous uh, that the movie could have been uh, very dour and grim, uh, you know, but instead it, it's it's bouncy and it's fun and it's great seeing these guys uh, become successful with these what look to be extremely delicious biscuits uh, to the point where my favorite line reading in the movie is when the one guy bites into it and he goes, good Lord, give me another. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like the way he's cooking them. I kept singing like, those are funnel cakes. 
basically, yeah. <laughs> the first funnel cakes in America. <laughs> Before there was Cheesecake Factory, there was First Cow. <laughs> and and they also the other thing that I really love about it is like they start so small. And like he, you mm-hmm. can tell that that first time he takes the milk from the cow, like you know, and, and also like my heart grew three sizes when he started talking to the cow. Oh, so milking it, I'm just like that was when I fully fell in love with this movie because oh, it's yeah. just so cute. But then like it's very clear he's like he's taking just what he needs. He's not milking the cow dry. He's just taking a little bit, and then. How and it's not, it's not greed that forces. Well, it's arguably it's not greed, at least for um, John Magaro's character. Um, I was gonna say because he actually proposes they slow down when things start getting a little, yeah, a little tense. And the other, it's a little more of a gray area, I think, um, with the King Who character, um, but. I just really like that it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it starts small and then it grows. It grows into something bigger. And it, it was never the intention for it to go as far as it did. But, you know. There you go. <laughs> uh, Emily, did I mishear you say before you spoke with Kelly? Yeah, I interviewed her before um, the, like, New York City limited release happened and then I went to a Q&A that she had at the Museum of the Moving Image and I got to just say hi and whatever. That's awesome. Um, whatever uh, little cool like tidbits or anything that you picked up on in talking with her that uh, you know you want to bring up or? You mean like her what she thinks about this movie or like? Yeah yeah anything anything really I would love to just hear like any talking points you know. Um, I feel like <laughs> I did not want to be the person to ask her about the cow and like, how do you cast a cow? Because I feel like everyone <laughs> ever interviewing her asked her that. And so I don't know, like I asked, uh, it feels like so long ago now, but um, I don't know. I wanted to know about what she looks for in a movie um, and a script in a story because all of her movies do deal with the people who are, overlooked within like story narratives and they're not doing this grand thing, but I find that like more affecting to me. And so um, she just talked about how, when she always collaborates with Jonathan Raymond, because he has a way of writing characters that are able to speak about issues that are going on in the country or in history or whatever, um, without making it preachy or obvious. And so she kind of gravitates towards that. And I think like, that's pretty obvious in this movie and her other ones that she's done too. I would be very curious to see, uh, much like how the Safdie brothers have with each film gotten a bigger budget each time. I would be very curious to see what she could do with a, I'm not going to say big, big budget, but just a bigger budget, you know, like what kind of a, story and what kind of a scale she would take with it and like where would the setting be and i would be very very curious to see what she would do because all of her movies have been relatively small um and they've never really gotten in my opinion like bigger 
um, production elements, you know, because you, when you're doing a period film, there's a lot of other elements that come into play. So that definitely drives the cost up a little bit. But otherwise, um, I, I would just be very curious, you know, to see what her style could bring to something with a, either a larger scale or higher production. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, she may not be interested in that, but, you know. Yeah, I don't think she would. Yeah. But. I mean, I, I do love that there's been, like, a, 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 a progressional growth, though, in her storytelling while still remaining consistent, uh, which has always yeah. been really exciting. Um, I, I will say I really loved how um, how diverse the cast was, especially once they got to the settlement, because I feel like that's something that often goes um, unremarked upon in a lot of mm-hmm. movies about expanding westward is that it was not just the white men from the east who are coming it was people from the uk and people from asia and people who were not all white and i i liked that they had the the um you know the native americans in there for some added kind of perspective on what their lives was like and they don't really go into it but uh, it's all you know the story is still told um and I th- there are so few period films that do that that I was very very appreciative to see it. I agree with you, Dan, and I also agree with you that it is sort of nice that it's there, but it doesn't become like a focal point of the movie. Where mm-hmm. I actually do think that the fact that it does very much hone in on this very intimate friendship between these two men and just lets the world around them kind of just color. Um, you know, sort of the the country, this young country that they're in right now, I think that's uh, so much more beneficial to this story. And I do actually like that those elements are there where you can see sort of the diverseness, the, 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 the diversity of this world and just have it be there, just have it be a part of the country that they're in and sort of a snapshot of where the country was at that point and make it feel so authentic and lived in. But it's not really what the movie is about it's sort of adding to the larger commentary but we're still focused in on these tight group of characters and i think that that's really really interesting i mean it's authentic it's real it wasn't just white dudes doing white dude shit you know in the early days of america (laughs) just like it isn't like that now um there's you know always been diversity within america and that's what makes you know the country sometimes great um but you know i think that that you know having that element here in this movie once again just added to the immersion um she already had me with the mood and the opening scene in terms of oh like i'm hooked let's see what happens but there are these other little details all throughout that kind of just like wash over you even when there are times where i felt like concerned that i'm like oh man this narrative is starting to slog it's really, really starting to like really like not go anywhere and we're just taking our time too, too much. Um, every moment I start to feel that way, then there would be a story development and something would happen and then it would continuously like move along, you know? I do agree though, once again, that I don't think the movie needs to be two hours long. I think 90 minutes would have been more well-suited. Um, I think there are one too many scenes where there's like casual dialogue and talk that doesn't add anything 
to the narrative. Um, it helps with, you know, the world building and, like I said, getting you, like, immersed in these tiny little details. But I don't feel uh, like it was wholly necessary. Yeah. And like, it's one of those things where, like, there's so much color around, like, the little tertiary characters. Yes, exactly. We don't really get to know. like, And I loved having that, you know, local color, as it were. But at the same time, it feels like it wasn't exactly necessary. I liked that it was like two hours long. I loved the characters so much. I could spend like five hours with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be honest, like I felt the length more so in the beginning, but as it went yeah. on, I, it actually surprisingly went pretty quickly for me. I remember there was one point mm-hmm. I had to pause it and I was like, Oh man, it's already been an hour. It did not really feel like that. And yeah. I, and I think that speaks to how much I was getting invested in the characters and their plights in this story. And I think that when you don't have that, that's when things start to feel really elongated and the pacing suffers when you're not, when you aren't invested in what's happening. But I found myself so interested in, you know, how they're going to keep going and you know how are these developments going to affect not only this business that they're creating but their friendship as well and because the movie does such a great job with those elements i actually found myself really invested in the story it was telling and by the end of it the length did not bother me at all final thoughts on first cow um anything that we didn't bring up that you would like to mention here uh we'll start off with uh emily um I don't know. I mean, I could talk about this movie all day. Um, (laughs) I I love it a lot. I think it's doing a lot um, for people who they don't normally watch movies like this and in taking a moment to think about the things that movies can do. They don't need to be, um, you know, fast paced, super exciting, super action packed, whatever to make you feel something. And um, I think it's definitely a movie that, with more thought of like after the viewing, I think it breeds more meaning for you. Um, like some of the scenes that they may not seem like they do anything in the moment. I think if you think about them afterwards and like what happens afterwards, um, you kind of understand it more. I definitely agree with that because after I saw the film at New York film festival, I couldn't get it out of my head after it was over. And I was really excited for, everyone else to see it when it released in the spring. And then obviously COVID happened a week of its release. Ugh. So nobody really got a chance to see it. Uh, but now here we are. And I have to admit, like my second viewing, I was curious to know because this time I wasn't like in a theater really, really glued to the screen. Uh, you know, I, I definitely have a little attention problem uh, when I'm <laughs> sitting at home. Uh, my phone is usually there so um but i will admit that the movie still held my attention throughout it was also helpful to be able to watch it with subtitles this time around as well and uh the viewing experience was fantastic still so i I agree emily that the movie does have a resting power uh long after you watch it for the first time and it can definitely be uh great for another viewing as well which like i said previously um i've never wanted to really revisit a Kelly Reichardt film before this one, uh, but this one I gladly did uh, for a lot of the elements that we talked about before. So that was really cool. Kaya. I'm so in love with this film. It feels like a warm hug to me. And <laughs> I just love that mm. it's just about like finding friendship and love and comfort like later on in your life. And it's just, I don't know. It's such a beautiful little portrait of like 
two guys that are just trying to make their way and find love within each other. And I just think that's beautiful. And also theaters just reopened here in Canada and the indie theater in my town is playing it next Friday. So we shall see. I might risk my life. Yeah. Yes. And I want to just stress <laughs> that one more time too, how rare it is to see uh, male friendship the way that it's depicted here. Uh, so often buddy cop movies or, you know, it's like I, I, I can think of just so many instances where I've seen like male friendship on screen, but not not like this in this intimate way mm. where it's non-romantic mm. and it's just tender and sweet. I like that's that's such a rarity. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, like, it's not the first time that she's explored male friendship. Old no, boys. old joy. <laughs> old joy. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's definitely a different um, relationship for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, Josh. Uh, there's two very quick things I want to mention. One, um, we did talk about like those scenes where Cookie is milking the cow, and I just have to say that when he said, "I heard you lost your husband," that just melted me completely. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> it, it, it surprisingly got me kind of emotional I, in a way I didn't expect. So yes, all those scenes are great. Um, and then the other thing, I just want to mention uh, Toby Jones as well. I thought he was really good in this movie, and he doesn't have a lot to do. It's not a, a huge role, but it's he brings an interesting premise. And, you know, Toby Jones is one of those actors that usually never makes that much of an impact for people. But I found every moment with him to be rather fascinating, and I like the dynamic that he had with every character. And, you know, he was like a solid player he wasn't like a huge standout but i found myself really appreciating what he was bringing to it kind of tying in both of your points there josh that scene where toby jones and them go out to the cow and the cow obviously has this familiarity now with the john mcgarrow character (laughs) (laughs) and their reaction to it in that moment of like oh like i guess she likes you like like, that was so great loved it (laughs) all right dan bear um the one thing we haven't talked about yet is the score, which I really loved. It gave it this feeling like it was um, a fable or almost a fairy tale. And that quality came solely from the score. And I really loved that. And that was one of those things that sort of drew me in in the beginning. And whenever I found my interest waning, it would kind of pop back in again and reignite my interest in the movie um and i think it's just really sparingly smartly used oh yeah definitely sparingly for sure but that um opening credit sequence i'm I'm usually not a fan of long opening credit sequences because if you don't like the music or the song that they choose over it it can be you know a slog to kind of get through but here i mean it's just a black screen there's nothing else going on and yet that music is so soothing Oh my gosh, I could listen yeah. to it all day. Yeah. It's on Spotify. Really there you go. It's on Spotify. There it is. Wow. <laughs> Instant download yeah, after we're done here. Music. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have uh, no other final thoughts. I said everything I wanted to say. Um, my grade here, and I don't know if this is going to sound low to you guys or not, but for me and just my relationship with like Kelly Reichardt's films, and like I, like I said before at the top of the show, I typically don't like slow movies. Uh, this is like really, really good for me. Uh, I would give it a very strong 7 out of 10. Uh, Dan Bear, what about you? Um, I am at an 8 out of 10. All right, all right. Kaya? Uh, I'm at a 10 out of 10. 
I loved it. Wow. Nice. Josh? I am going to go with an 8 out of 10 for this one. All right. And Emily? Um, It's a 10. It's a 10 for me. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, now, in terms of awards prospects for First Cow, I... I, I, you know, okay. So I had this feeling early on, but obviously due to the eligibility and everything that's happened and the fact that it's a longer season yeah. now, I really, really had this belief that a best adapted screenplay nomination could happen. But now I'm not so sure. I still think it could. Yeah, yeah I think it could. I, yeah. yeah, I think who knows it what's going to happen with this year. Critic support at the end of the year in order to make it happen. One thousand percent. Well, it's a twenty-four. So <laughs> this is exactly the type of movie that would get a lot of critics' mentions and become like a mainstay of the season, and could translate that into. Only an adapted screenplay nomination. Yeah, but like once again, A twenty four, and they just drop. They just continuously always drop the ball all the time with, and, yeah. yeah, deserving films. And like if they don't, if they feel they don't have a surefire best picture contender on their hands, they typically don't push it hard. And this is the yeah. kind of movie that is going to need that push from critics, from A twenty four, from people like us. It reminds me a lot of the situation that Leave No Trace was in. That was exactly what I was thinking about. It's good. It's a good comparison. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, that is the best shot that it probably has. Although I will say that if it was up to me, I would also put these costumes forward. I love the costume design in this. Yeah, movie. yeah. There's a lot of research that went into them. I, I know, like especially the Native American um, mm. costumes are actually from a museum in the area so they were like wow. actually oh, wow. used and everything so yeah that would be nice to recognize that i mean i could tell that stuff did feel like it was pretty authentic and it felt appropriately like textured for the time and you know what this costume designer is the same one who did the cell so she's overdue anyway okay <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> There you go. Can't get more, more different than those two movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, that'll do it here for our review of First Cow on the Next Best Picture podcast. Emily, thank you so much for taking some time out to uh, be here today. Um, I know you're such a big fan of the film. I'm really, really happy that you were able to join us and uh, lend some of your expertise on this movie. And, uh, can't wait to hear you keep championing it uh, throughout the rest of the year because, like I said uh, before, uh, the film definitely will need that push when the time comes so people don't forget. Mm -hmm. Where can everyone find your work on the internet? Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Emily KUB underscore, um, and a lot of my writings on Film School Rejects. Um, but everything I do is put on Twitter, so that's a good place to find me. <laughs> All right, Kaya? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Film Lesbian. All righty. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of First Cow here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, Castbox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Krista Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.